Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, thank you so much for joining us and tuning in. It's Josh Carey. Of course, it's the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am so excited about today's episode because I live this. I get it. I am actively pursuing all this. I'm a fan from my quote-unquote previous time in life a few short years ago where you know the deal. I was miserable, angry, frustrated, PO'd. You know what that's about, right? upset and finally uh, two adoring children later staring back at me really gave me the kick in the pants I needed to say I can't be this person I certainly can't be this father any longer I got to make changes I got to do things right here right now and I did my goodness I made the choice and the decision to put things in place so why am I giving you all this backstory that you most likely know if you share me if, if you follow me for any length of time is because my guest today lives and breathes all this. It's Lisa Marie Pepe, and she is known as the confidence coach and online visibility expert. Imagine that, the confidence coach. I talk about that so often. I can't wait to hear. Help me welcome right there, Lisa Marie. How are you, Lisa Marie? Hi, thank you so much, Josh. This is going to be amazing. I could already feel the energy, so I'm really thrilled to be here. I love that you said that you can already feel the energy. I want to go right down that path. Tell me how much of a thing that is in your in your life, working with energy, acknowledging it, absorbing it, dealing with it, feeling it. Honestly, it's about 99% of everything that I do, everything I teach my clients. Uh, You know, strategy is one thing, but if you're not in the right element and you're not in the right zone, in the right headspace, it doesn't matter. The easiest task on the planet can become the most difficult, uh, undoable thing, right? So, and, you know, contrary to that, when you're in the zone and you're in that space where you feel good mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, everything is just sort of flowing together. Even the most complex tasks become like a piece of cake. You can do anything. So, and energy and just feeling aligned and feeling uh, good in your own skin is so important. It's actually the most important thing, I think, uh, and probably the cornerstone of all success. I love the idea of 
a confidence coach because the more I go down my path, which these days is really heavy in specifically the podcast space, but that, you know, is even a means to an end, right? It's, it's just a vehicle mm-hmm. for us to share our message. And with that, what I'm learning is many people have, you know, if not all have a message to share, whether they step up and learn to share it is a different story. But because we uh, give a lot of people a podcast platform, either as host or guest, I'm seeing firsthand right now that one of the roadblocks is people like, oh, I desperately want a guest on shows, but who's going to listen to me? Or do I really have anything to say? Or I don't really feel comfortable behind a mic. So I've translated all that to confidence. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to be able to teach confidence to that end. Tell me about the role you play in your clients' lives when it comes to confidence, because I know you deal with heart-centered women primarily. So how does this take shape before, during, and after your work with them? So that's an amazing question, and I agree 100% how you narrowed everything down into self-confidence. And for me, self-confidence is also... I don't want to say it's exactly the same thing, but let's say it's the cousin of self-love and self-acceptance. And so many of the individuals that come to work with me, yes, they're entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, and they've got big dreams and they have big goals. But the one thing that keeps getting in their way is themselves. And so let me explain, right? So when I say they're getting in the way of themselves, I truly mean that many of us, and myself included from a previous life, like you talked about yours, you know, we come into this adult world, right? Young adult world, if you will, even when we're transitioning from teens to 20s, but we bring with us the barrage of baggage and and stuff that's been put on us from the time we were born. And even in the most loving families where you have two parents who are doing the best they can, there are still going to be societal pressures. There are still going to be outside influences that are going to impact the way someone feels about themselves as they grow, as they mature. So, and again, that's like the worst, I mean, that's the best case scenario, right? We've got two loving parents that are married, live together, raising their children to be the best they can be. But let's say even then the kid goes off to school and gets bullied day in and day out. Or they play a sport and they have a coach that's really mean to them. And I mean mean, not not like motivational and kind of in your face, but I mean mean, right? That was the case with me. I had two basketball coaches from middle school to high school that were verbally abusive and physically abusive to some extent. I don't want to go there, but I'm just saying it doesn't matter. Even in the best of homes, Growing up, there are so many pressures. You know, if it's not immediate and explicit, it's implicit by what we see in the media, by the magazines we read, by the things, the commercials we see. We're always being taught and told that we're not quite good enough. And again, it doesn't matter if you're told a thousand times that you are good enough. The one time you get a failing grade or the one time somebody makes fun of you or the one time you find yourself feeling insecure when you look in the mirror. It's those things that chip away at our souls. And so by the time we come to young adulthood, adulthood, we're like fractured. We're fractured souls. But here's the beautiful thing. 
you can be fractured. It doesn't mean you're broken and it doesn't mean that you're not repairable. And so something that I enforce and I, for my own life and for my clients, because I will never ask anybody to do anything that I'm not willing to do for myself is to get really, really honest with yourself about your fears. You cannot fix, you cannot correct, you cannot address things that you are unwilling to acknowledge. And so many of our fears live in the dark, right? We don't want anybody to know about them. We think we're crazy. We think we're the only ones who ever had this crazy thought about why we're not good enough or why nobody will listen to us or how we feel about our body or, you know, it's a, a barrage of things. And we all have it, by the way, all of us. We all come with baggage because life brings with it its own baggage in its own experience. So many of the people I work with, a lot of the women I work with, they are very compassionate, passionate, and like inspiring people. They really have a, a, a knack for wanting to change the world. But that fear of rejection, that fear of not being good enough constantly gets reinforced in their minds, even before they put themselves out there. So they're relying on previous experiences to dictate their behavior, their choices right now, because they're predicting an outcome based on what they've already experienced. So they have no idea that just because their teacher in seventh grade didn't listen to them and told them they were stupid, they, they don't know that there's a difference between what's going to happen now versus what happened then, right? Our psyches will do this crazy thing to try to protect us, right? Which is the pain of feeling that emotion in that moment was so God awful that I will do whatever I have to do to avoid feeling it again. If that means I have to be silent, if that means I have to hide behind my computer, if it means that nobody gets to experience my amazing gifts, well, then so be it because I'm protecting me, right? And again, automatic kicks in. The ego is very powerful, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn. And so my favorite thing to do is to teach my clients how to unlearn the implicit and ex explicit messages they have been given their whole lives. And I really believe in the concept of unlearning because if you can learn something, you can unlearn it. Learning is simply pairing. It's pairing two things together, right? Making an association. Well, you can disassociate those two things as well. And so a lot of the work we do, uh, you know, I could talk all day about strategy and funnels and building programs and how to market and all that. But if you don't, feel good about who you are and who you come to be in the, you know, in your, in, in the public side, right? In your own expression of who you are. If you can't feel good about that authentically and genuinely good, all of the marketing, all of the strategy, all of that, it, it does not even matter. It's like, you might as well not even bother because without that mindset, without that self-confidence, without the self-acceptance, without the self-love, Again, it, it's like building a house on, on straw. It, there's no foundation. It's going to blow over the minute the wind you know, moves you know, east or west. So a lot of the work we do has to do with really learning where our fears are coming from, addressing them, and then really going through this process of forgiveness, which, hmm. again, not easy, but absolutely necessary. I, uh, I, I'm blown away because you're literally speaking my language and my life. I spent 
all my life in hiding, thus the hidden entrepreneur. And like you said, once we reiterate these beliefs we have about how we felt in certain situations, we then step mm -hmm. up consciously or subconsciously and say, well, I'm going to avoid every situation that could possibly hinge on these feelings coming back up. I don't want that anymore, right? It's, it's a protective mechanism. And I protected it uh, closely and deeply for all those years and hid and hid all my talent, my ability, my skill, and then became angry, miserable, and frustrated, right? As so many of us do, just wanting to be nice and gain the approval of everybody else until, like you said, I took an honest assessment and said, no more. What am I doing that I should not be doing anymore? It's not always easy. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about the unlearning part. How in the world do we unlearn something? Where does it begin? It begins with, like I said, getting very honest, writing out what our fears are, because again, can't change what you won't address. So I often have my clients write out their fears. However ridiculous they may sound, we all have fears and some of them, most of them are irrational, but I have them write them out. It doesn't matter because I'm not going to judge them, right? It's just, it's their fear, it's their experience. So put it out there, whatever it is, however crazy it sounds, we have to talk about it. Secondly, I have this process in which I personally feel that we can really trace back where those fears stem from. Mm. And for me, that's important, sort of a proprietary process I've, I've created over the years in both clinical work that I did previously and in the work I do now. And so what I'll do is I will have my clients write down, let's say 10, if they, if they have 10, let's say top 10 fears, right, about being visible, why they're not confident, all this. And I will get everything from I don't like the way I look on camera. Yeah, you know, and you hear every excuse, every reason, every fear, right? Then I'll say, okay, uh, and I take a piece of paper and I want you to fold it in half. And I want you to, on the left-hand column, write down those fears again. And in the right-hand column, I want you to write down the most influential people that you can remember from your childhood and into your current year, right? Like whatever it is that's been bothering you. And people will say, oh, you know, well, my parents, of course, they're the first influence you had. Some people will say, you know, a sibling. Some people will say, I don't know, there was that teacher I remember. And okay, good. Write the teacher's name down. All right. Write down the coach. Write down the ex-girlfriend. Write down the ex-boyfriend. Write down the college professor. Write whoever these people were that were influential in your life, good or bad. Okay. Just make a list on the right-hand side. Again, not judging, not trying to assess anything in the moment, just people that really impacted your life. All right, so now we go back down through our fears and we, we look at the fears and I have them look at the, the side where the people are. And I'll say, is there anyone on this list at all that could have contributed to that fear? Conscious, unconscious, intended, not intended, right? Sometimes people don't know they see things like to a 14 year old girl about her body. And you're like, mm, not the best thing to do, but they're not thinking in the moment, right? They're thinking about, we just want to win the game. So move, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So we figure that part out. All right. So, you know, John Smith and, you know, ninth grade beat me up in the hallway and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So why do I have this fear of showing up and, and expressing myself? Right. Cause the minute I did, I got pounded on by this bully, right? This guy came over and started pounding me. Right. 
Okay, draw a line. Okay, and you could have more than one person that feeds into one fear. Not a problem. We can make a couple of lines there. And as we go down through that process, what I really want people to do is to understand that the fear developed most often as a result of someone or something that was outside of themselves. It's very important to acknowledge that because oftentimes, and I think you hit on this before, we will pick up where our abuser, aggressor, instigator, whatever it was, the person, right, that, that was sort of the one giving us the insults or showing us the things that the ugly parts of ourselves, we pick up where they left off. So let's say somebody got bullied all of their lives, right? Middle school, high school, they were bullied. They graduate, okay? Bully goes this way, person goes this way. Bully doesn't think about this person ever again, ever again. They go into a new life, they go to college, maybe they bully somebody else, I don't know. Maybe they were bullied their whole life, we don't know. But the person who was bullied, now they take over where their bully left off. So all of a sudden, they're sitting in a classroom, but there's nobody there. The bully's not there anymore. The bully's gone, right? Long gone, out of sight, out of mind, not thinking about you at all. But as you're sitting there, you're thinking, and maybe all of a sudden you get nervous. And you're like, why am I getting nervous? I'm sitting in class. Oh, that's right. It's because, well, yeah. And, and this is what's going on in the back of your head. You're not even quite aware of it sometimes. But in your mind, you're thinking about all the things the bully said, right? All the things they were whispering at you or taunting you, throwing things at you, whatever it was. And when you do, you take over. You start doing it to yourself. And you're like, yeah, you know, that person was right. Like, that's so stupid. Why did I even say that? Like, that was so dumb. Right? And this is the kind of dialogue that happens every day. And now I'm giving an example. This happens with a lot of different stuff. But that kind of internal dialogue every day, every day, we're just talking to ourselves, talking to ourselves, and filling in. Like, we're becoming our own aggressor now. Because we've not learned to divorce or, you know, just, just detach from those people or places or things that hurt us. And so for me, it's very important that we figure out, again, where the fear is coming from. Because oftentimes people even say, like if you've worked with anyone who's ever had panic or anxiety or anything, they'll say, it just came out of nowhere. I used to say that when I had panic attacks, right? It came out of nowhere. I don't know. I was fine and it came out of nowhere. Did it really? Like if you really were to trace your steps, like what precipitated what, what and then what happened the moment you felt. The physical, the physical sensation of the anxiety. It probably started like a half hour ago or an hour ago or five days ago, depending on what your dialogue is. So I really want people to, and by the way, people can also list themselves in that right-hand column, okay? Because sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Many times we are our own worst enemy. And self-forgiveness is also very important. Prime example, when I decided to shift my life, I could have blamed myself and continued to harbor feelings of guilt and remorse and uh, just, you know, not feeling great about who I was during a previous time in my life. When I wasn't kind to myself, when I wasn't perhaps kind enough to the people around me because I was suffering and I was hurting. I can't continue to punish myself either, right? So forgiveness is also about self-forgiveness. 
So then after we've kind of processed this a little bit, and it doesn't happen in one session, this is not like a 30-minute exercise and you're done. We really want to practice, you know, these, the concept of moving towards forgiveness. Again, that is a process. It is not like, I, I forgive you and that's it, bye. You know, we can do symbolic things, like we can write people's names down and maybe, you know, say the Ho'oponopono prayer and then put it in a, you know, the fireplace and burn it. Great. It is, it does help, but again, it's a process. Forgiveness is a process. But you do want to get to a point in which you understand that you harboring feelings of anything that make you feel poorly, right? If it's getting in the way of you feeling good about you, if it's zapping your energy because you're so angry still at that person that you're not going to allow yourself to have a good day because you want to stay angry all day, right? We've all been there, right? It's like, I don't want to be in a good mood. I want to be angry all day, damn it, because I'm pissed off. Okay, except you are hurting yourself now, okay? You're not hurting the person. The person's out there. They don't care. You, they, you're not even talking to them. You're not even telling them that you're angry at them, right? You're just harboring that, that feeling, that emotion, but you're also blocking the light from coming in. You're blocking your love. You're blocking your happiness, your joy, all the experiences you have with the people who do love you, with the people who do care about you, with the things you enjoy in life, right? No, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to sit here and be pissed off all day when I could be out at the beach or I could be, you know, hanging out with the kids or whatever it is. So you have to get to that place. Again, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Yeah, my, so much there. My whole fear where I picked up where the bully left off. I love that whole concept because it's so true. There's no physical harm or danger we're in, but we perpetuate it. For me, for four decades, my version of that was I, I felt that if I showed up and exercised my full ability and talent, that people would feel threatened now, this was a very subconscious, you know, it was not on the surface, but mm -hmm. this is what looking back, I felt that if I were to show up and do great things, the people I was around would feel threatened and they would mm -hmm. retaliate in some form. Who do you think you are doing that? Or you're not that good or any of that stuff and beat me down and I didn't feel strong enough to be able to protect myself. So that was mine until... It's my two adoring children these days that thankfully gave me the, the, the view that I needed to start making better choices. Do you find that people will only make a choice when there's something that the pain gets too significant? What's that about? Yes, absolutely. Prime um, example, even for myself, right? Like for years, you know, I suffered through depression and anxiety and overwhelming uh, angst, right? I, I talk and often joke about, you know, when uh, I used to be so afraid that I was afraid of my own shadow, right? That I would jump, you know, because I did. I had this very easily, you know, easily startled response kind of thing. And and it was because it was years of, of again, years of being a perfectionist and stressing and, and wanting to get straight A's and seeking approval and and all of a sudden, I found myself in graduate school having panic attacks all of a sudden. And it's like, whoa, what is going on here? Like, you know, anyway, I don't want to go down that road. But yes, when change only happens 
when the pain of not changing becomes so unbearable that we have no other choice. That is when change happens. That is when action happens. Sometimes people take the wrong action, and that's not good. But more often than not, at least with the people I've been able to work with, thank God, um, that pain becomes so unbearable that it's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore, right? And I'm not going to do this anymore. And I deserve better than this. The people around me deserve better than this. Now I'm ready to change. And I have seen this repeatedly with clients. There's a woman that I've been working with for two years. And for two years, she has been in a toxic relationship with her parents. And for the last two years, I, I've bared witness to this and tried to, we've worked together. And she's a brilliant woman. She is, she's got her doctorate in acupuncture. She can, you know, completely like run her own life. Yet she did not see that. She didn't feel that. She always felt she was dependent on the family, right? And so was keeping herself like almost hostage to that situation. And in the past month, when things became so unbearable, she finally, something clicked and she went into action and has been on the go for a month, productive every single day, working on her next phase, her contingency plan. And every day I check in with her and I'm like, would you get done today? And she'll list a bunch of stuff. This is a woman that I, I adore. She's brilliant. She's bright, but she was her own worst enemy. And so for years, you know, it'd be like, okay, well, let's work on this. Let's work on that. And it wouldn't get done. There's always a few, so always, you know, oh, you know, I had the kids. All of a sudden, stuff got real heavy. And she said to me, I can't do this anymore. I have to leave. And I said, finally, you understand. I said, so what are you going to do about it now? What are you going to do right now in this moment? So you don't want to lose momentum. You don't want to lose that feeling. Take one action right now. I don't care if it's to declare something, write it out on paper, whatever it is you have to do. Take one action. And it's been brilliant to watch this transformation. Like all of a sudden, all the things that we, she was sort of dragging on for the last two years, they're like almost all done in like the last six weeks, right? It's like, no, I'm serious. I need to get out of this situation. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to my children. I am capable of being, you know, an adult. I can raise my own children the way I want to. Like, she's just on the path now. She's moving, right? If the situation hadn't escalated to the point where it did, I think she would have stayed there. Hmm. Because it was comfortable enough, yeah. even though it was unhappy, even though it was anxiety-provoking, even though it was depressing, it's comfortable yeah. because it's known. It's the unknown that there's the living daylights out of us. You know, it's interesting about that. that that's, that's so comforting in the sense that so often in life, we're surrounded by people in some capacity or another that we just see as, as negative or ang angry and even toxic. But what I've been able to do, sort of like the military man who is in order to really strengthen up, what do they do? They put them in these situations where they're, they're tested like very abruptly and deliberately. So for my sanity in the past, when I've been around those people, 
And I couldn't, for whatever circumstance in that moment, physically leave that situation. Mm -hmm. What I've told myself is, okay, how do I make this work for me? And it's like, okay, well, this is here, as Tony Robbins likes to say, life happens for you, not to you. Totally believe Mm -hmm. that. So I'm like, okay, if this is to my benefit, what is the benefit? I'm like, well, this is here to strengthen me. And this is here to show me that there is an unbearable pain that I need to address. So accept that in some capacity. Now, I'm not suggesting get abused and accept abuse in any way, but because what I've done is it, it, it's not abuse, it's, it's their issue, right? That I am just physically around in that moment. So I'm able to see it for what it is and say, wow, that's an issue that they really have to work out, but I'm, I'm witnessing it. So what do I make of all this? Well, it's here to strengthen me. So I know that a lot of what we do and the people we help, we've been there in the past. Hey there, entrepreneurs. Eric Cabral here, founder of On Air Brands and host of the Entrepreneur Circle and Capital Hacking. I wanted to share something truly unique with you that we've created called Pod Max, which is an amazing opportunity to connect you with major podcasts to help you share your fascinating stories with their communities. This unique invitation-only event includes interviews with you on top-rated business podcasts all in one day. It also provides a unique networking opportunity with high-performance guests and thought leaders who are authors, coaches and consultants, investors, speakers, executives, you name it. These are the type of people that you need to be around. We also provide industry expert keynotes to hit our stage to share insights on podcasting, investing, marketing to help you take things to the next level. And the cool thing about Podmax is that it has a multimedia agency engine behind it with on-air brands to provide social media promotions before and after the event to share your brand new shows with your network. So hit the apply now button at podmax.co and I hope to see you at the next Podmax event. I'd love to hear your your version of that in terms of life growing up for you. What was that really like as a child? Well, yeah, that's, uh, let's go there. So I grew up, I, I am an only child. I definitely, um, I had two loving parents, except one of them struggled with alcoholism. And that was my dad. And the other one, my mom, God rest her soul, she did the best that she could, but because of her upbringing, was very much an enabler and very much on the, on the side of trying to control things, you know. So I grew up from a very young age witnessing my dad oftentimes being drunk, uh, so being afraid. And then watching my mom, you know, plead and cry and empty liquor bottles and, you know, try to like follow him wherever he went to make sure he wasn't drinking. So now again, they were two very loving people. There wasn't any physical abuse in the house or anything like that. I don't think my mom would have stayed had that been the case. But even then, right, even though they they didn't yell at me, my dad never yelled at me and blamed me for his drinking. But I grew up internalizing that I had to fix things. It was my job to fix, Mm. right? Oh, God, mom, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're crying. I don't like that. I'm seven years old. I'm going to go run in there and just tell them to stop yelling, stop crying. I love them. Could they please stop? Now, I internalized that even moving forward into like grade school, you know, and I was 
I excelled at school. I loved school, right? I found solace in school, except it's where I started to get my personal uh, identity from, right? It was in the external validation. It was in being in all AP classes, getting straight A's, being captain of this, being the honor society captain, being the president of this community, playing sports, right? Being an athlete, being perfect, being, being everything to all people, except never once reaching out for help, right? So I grew up with the big secret, right? Which was, we don't, we don't tell anybody about this. We don't talk about this outside of these four walls because this is our business and nobody needs to know about it. So I grew up very like shameful, right? Like, and afraid, right? If I were to just come home from school one day with a friend, I didn't know, was there going to be a fight that night? Was my dad going to come home drunk? Were they going to fight again? Were they going to yell again? So I was always on what I would say pins and needles, right? Very much, you know, the fitting definition of an adult child of an alcoholic. So thanks be to God, my dad has been sober for about 12 years now. And we have an incredible relationship now. But back then, it was very unbalanced, right? I was always the parent in, I say, in my parents' relationship. And that's the truth. You know, at 15 years old, I'm busy trying to get straight A's, make varsity, volleyball, basketball, and softball because I was a triathlete for four years. I'm so busy and so immersed trying to bury myself and get validation, right? Then in the meantime, I'm getting, like, abused by this coach physically. And when I say physically, I mean, like, making us do drills until we threw up, you know, really, like, harsh stuff. We were, like, 14 and 15-year-old girls. We weren't, you know, I mean, these people idolized Bobby Knight, okay? And they were were coaching middle school and high school girls, like saying the the worst things you could possibly, possibly say to a girl in general, a female. And, you know, so this is where I found solace, right? You can imagine because my house was chaotic, right? Mom and dad are going to be yelling and crying and I got to get to bed and I don't want to hear them screaming and crying and then dad throwing stuff because he's drunk. So this was my trade-off. Like I, I would go play basketball and, you know, maybe seven out of 10 times it was great, but the three times it wasn't, it was really bad. It was like, it was like an abusive relationship, right? It's great. It's great. It's great. Oh, here comes like, you know, the punch or the, you know, the physical wound or whatever. So I grew up like that. And I remember there was a time I was, God, I was 15 years old. I'd just come home from basketball practice, wasn't even able to drive. And my mom was working. My mom also buried herself in work. I love her so much. God rest her soul. But she buried herself in her work. Because that's where she found solace. And so she was a nurse. And she often took a lot of overtime shifts and everything like that. And there was a time, multiple times, but there was one time in particular that I remember my dad getting drunk and not being able to get up and go pick her up. Like he just couldn't drive. And my mom calling and saying, where's, where's daddy? Is he coming to pick me up? Because she had been standing outside waiting for like a half hour. And I was like, this before cell phones and all that, you know. And I said, mom, I said, I can't wake him up. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I can't wake him up. And she's like, <sighs> she's like, 
can you come get me? And I'm like, mom, I'm 15. I'm like, I don't, I don't even have a license. And she's like, I know. She's like, but I need to get home. And I'm like, well, can't you ask a coworker? Can somebody try? Well, no, because then I got to explain what happened. So here I am, 15 years old, driving a car, going to pick up my mom because my dad's too drunk to do it. Mm. Right? So, you know, and I had a lot of experiences like that. Now, that's not to villainize my parents. I love my parents. And as we grew older and as they grew up, our relationship was really, really wonderful. Um, and they were always supportive of me. It wasn't that. But sometimes, let's face it, they just weren't there emotionally. They couldn't be because they were so entwined in their own chaos and their own destruction, right? They couldn't be there to see, hey, mom, like I'm losing weight like crazy because my basketball coach told me I'm fat. So that's why I'm only eating lettuce and drinking water, okay? Right, so I battled through an eating disorder when I was probably seven, it probably started around like 16, 17, but it didn't become a real problem until I went away to college. Again, these are the demons that I faced as I was growing up because this is what I knew, right? So mom and dad were so busy arguing that I'm playing basketball 24-7, hanging around with my coaches, my teammates. That's my family now. And my coach tells me I'm fat and that I need to go on a diet and lose weight if I want to start. Mm. Well, that's everything when you're playing sports and you're in high school. So what do I do? I start doing these absurd things like don't eat in front of people, right? If we go to pasta dinners, they, they told me, my coaches told me, don't, you don't eat the pasta and you don't eat the dessert or the bread. Go eat the salad and drink the water. You don't get all this other stuff that other teammates get to eat because they're skinny and they're in shape. You're not. It's kind of stuff I was told. And at the time, I mean, I was 14, 15 years old. The last thing you want to do is be ostracized or be an outcast my, my teammates were my, my life. If I didn't have my teammates, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Right? These are my, like, my crew. Right? We were together for four years, you know, middle school, high school, everything. So you do these absurd things. And, again, I mean, my parents were loving, but because they were so entrenched sometimes in their own stuff, they didn't realize that I was, like, binge eating at night in the closet so nobody could see because I had been starving all day because my coaches wouldn't let me eat the damn pasta dinner. It was stuff like that, right, that I sort of had to process and look at and sort of understand. Now, when that turned into a full-blown eating disorder during my second year of college, and I was like 90 pounds and on the verge of being hospitalized, I had to make a decision. I had to decide, am I going to allow the people, by the way, the coaches who no longer were a part of my life, right? They weren't there anymore. They disappeared, right? The people that I, I thought loved me, the people that I thought were my, like, my, you know, my family. I went away to college and after the first few months, they disappeared while I was completely homesick and depressed and falling apart. And so that's when the eating disorder kind of came into play because it was a way of controlling, right? So for the first time I could control something outside of myself or within myself because I didn't feel like I had any control. So I remember being in my therapist's office. I remember saying to me, you have two choices. You either make that decision right now that you're going to get better and you're going to take this medication that's going to help you to get better because I had refused for months, but I wasn't getting any better, like on my own. She said, or I'm going to hospitalize you. 
she said that those are your choices because it's getting to a point where it's unhealthy and I'm not going to run that risk of you having a heart attack or any, you know, just, you know, falling down, whatever. You're not thinking rationally. Your body is starved. Your brain is starved. What are you going to do? I was 20 years old. I was 21, 20 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, I will do anything. Please don't hospitalize me. Please, please don't, please don't make me go to the hospital. That was like my biggest fear. Please don't make me do that. But I decided in that moment, okay, I have to admit, I have an eating disorder. I'm wrecking my body. I'm emotionally, I can't even function. And mentally, I can't function because I'm starved. I have to get better. I have to get better. And I'm not going to be a statistic. I'm not going to be, you know, eight out of 10 women who suffer from an eating disorder never fully recover. Mm. No, I was not going to be that. I was going to be the two out of 10 that did. So, you know, going back to when you asked me earlier, do we change when the pain gets so severe? I believe yes. Because I knew I didn't want a lifetime of that craziness. I did it for two years. It was, it, it, it's hard to upkeep that maintain that <laughs> you know eating lettuce and like you know a grape every day like that that's hard work and then you know you want to going and binging and doing all this crazy stuff and so I was like I can't do that the rest of my life that's way too hard let me do the work and that's when it all came out I'll never forget I was 20 years old before I said to anybody my dad is an alcoholic and that was when I was in therapy battling an eating disorder, battling through depression, trying to figure out why is this happening to me? Why am I a mess? I was so in control and everything in high school, right? <laughs> so fun to think about that. And funny, actually, to think I was in control. But I'm sharing that story because, I mean, and it's one of many that I've, you know, battled through, overcome, et cetera. But I know now that the eating disorder was a way of me controlling and making sense out of a world that I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with anymore. I just, I was so tired of being a perfectionist and trying to please everybody and trying to get A's and tired of my parents fighting and it's just, I was just tired. And for once I wanted something that was mine that I could hold on to. And that's what I held on to. And experts will tell you, anyone who's been there will tell you eating disorders are about control. They're not about food. They're about control. Hmm. We both know that this current lifestyle for anybody who succeeds at a more healthier lifestyle as they define it, it takes daily consistent effort, work, and uh, putting in the habits and rituals day in and day out. Do you find that that's the case too? Yes, absolutely. And it's why I enforce that self-care, which includes eating well, exercising, taking supplementation, whatever it is that you need to do for yourself, that for me is a non-negotiable. So as an entrepreneur, as someone who's my own boss and works for myself, like everybody thinks it's just, oh, so much fun. You just get to do whatever you want all day. That includes being your own boss, but also being your own like uh, self-preserver, right? So I have lunchtime blocked off on my calendar every single day. I don't see clients until after I've had breakfast and worked out every day. 
I don't start my day before any of that. Before I've, you know, journaled, done my stuff, done my praying, like things that have to fuel my body, my mind, my soul. If I don't do those things, because I didn't do those things for years and I burnt out more than once. If I don't do those things for me, I am no good to anybody else. And so for that reason, self-care is completely non-negotiable. And it's in my calendar. So when people go to book calls, they can't see what I'm doing, but that time is my time. My lunchtime, I don't do calls during lunch. I, if I wanted that, I can go work somewhere else and be on the phone while I'm shoving down a Big Mac on the, you know, I don't want that. I don't want that lifestyle. I want to eat wholesome, nutritious, organic food, right? That's what lights me up, makes me feel good on the inside and out. So it, it's non-negotiable. It's it just, it, it has to be primary. Yeah, I have found too that um, when I made that choice to go from uh, not good to better, uh, I realized that, okay, I have to take the honest look, like we've said, of what are the small, medium, and large things that I'm doing mm-hmm. day in and day out that really aren't serving me or getting me where I want to go. Some are obvious, some are not so obvious. But then once you start deliberately looking for it, you, you have a list. And then I made the choice. I said, all right, well, let me stop doing this and let me instead do this. Let me replace that with this. And then slowly but surely every day, now I have probably 20 or 30 deliberate specific things that I do and how I do it that make up my day. And it's ever evolving from how I wake up to when I wake up, how I go to sleep to when I go to sleep, all deliberate. And it resets like anybody in recovery. I often say I feel (laughs) like I am in recovery, but in many ways we are, aren't we? recovering from that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Those old lifestyles. Yeah. It does. Even right now, I used to be so disciplined. I would be in bed by 1030 every night because I get up at 630 every morning and slowly within the last few months, I'm working on this right now with my own coach. I realized I've been pushing the envelope, right? So it's not 1030, it's 11. Then when it's 1130, then a couple of nights I'm going to bed at 12, 12, 15, and I'm still waking up at 6.30. And there were a couple of days where I was just dragging. And even now, I just met with her yesterday and she said, tell me one thing you want to change personally this week. What do you want to achieve? And I was like, you know what? I have to start being more disciplined and getting to bed earlier, period. That's it. And I fell a little bit short of that last night again. I just did. And I'm being honest about that because people think as coaches, like we don't struggle with anything or we've got it all made. And it's like, "Mm, not so much. I mean, we're human. And, you know, but that's one thing I'm working on right now because everything else is in check. Still exercising, still eating well, still taking supplements, still praying, still meditating, still journaling. Damn it. I'm, I'm not in bed yet at that time. Right. So I'm being gentle enough with myself. I'm like, well, I tried and it didn't work, but let's try again. Let's do it again, right? You have to do it until it works. You have to change it a little bit, but you have to find what works and then do it. You you just rattled off and listed out a lot of the same habits and daily rituals I uh, indulge in as well, deliberately, right? It's a choice. You take yeah. responsibility. Yeah. You, you can't make excuses. How often do you see that, that people are always, well, I'd like to do that, but or, I really can't do that. And they try justifying it with an excuse all the time. And I used to do it all the time. 
We all did. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, nope, I, I fell short of that. Nope, that's my fault, and I will fix it. <laughs> yeah. You really just have to know what you want, what you're going for, and what you're willing to put in in order to achieve it. Yes or no? If it's no, okay, it's no. Then make that choice and go on with your business. But then don't complain. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right, exactly. Don't complain about the entire little day if you're not going to go to bed you know, earlier. I mean, that's, right. you know, something that, right. Or, yeah, or, or all the number of things that you should admit you're doing that are causing the tiredness. Yeah, the one thing, too, I, just wanna, I wanna drive home, I know we're probably coming to the end, but I wanna also just point out that all behavior serves a purpose, mm. even if it's maladaptive behavior, even if it's, um, you know, self-injurious behavior, like, it serves a purpose. We don't just do things because, uh, duh, we have no, like, we're just wandering around like a bunch of idiots and we have no concept of what we're doing. Yes, it could be unconscious in the sense that we don't realize maybe that's the way we're protecting ourselves or maybe that's the way we're hiding or whatever it is. But all behavior, even the behaviors that we know are not good, still serve a purpose and a function and they fulfill a need, right? That is what behavior does. It fulfills a need, right? My stomach growls. I go get food. I feed myself. My stomach stops growling right now. Let's talk about just for a minute, sugar and salt and fat and everything. Thank God I don't because I've trained my body for the last 15 years not to. But again, you know, people struggle with that a lot. And it's like, okay, but what's really going on, right? Like, why, 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 why are you, why are you craving those things? Is it a nutrient, you know, deficit of some kind? Is it emotional? Is it, you know, that you're depressed and craving serotonin rich food? Like, there's so many things that are underlying. So it's not like, well, I just felt like eating something sweet and I ate it. So then I have all this remorse about it. No, let's understand why you eat it, right? Let's understand why, right? Because there's a reason. There's a reason. You know, maybe your dopamine's not kicking, your serotonin isn't. But if you eat the donut, you think it's going to pop it up because it might for like a minute. might give you a little, ooh, like I feel great, then crash. Hmm. So you have to kind of understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. Wow, uh, Lisa Marie, I know we can go on for so long. We really only tapped the surface. It's crazy um, how much we could really go on and, and with, with all of this. But looking back on everything we spoke about, for the person listening, what can they and perhaps should they do next? What could they really do to get things moving in the right direction for themselves? They have to... They have to get honest with themselves. It has to start there. You have to really, really allow yourself to just be honest, wide open, raw, vulnerable, honest. And, you know, it doesn't matter. Sit down and write it out. Sit down and emote it. Talk about it. Cry about it. Rage about it. Just don't hurt anybody else or yourself. But rage about it. Yes. You know, scream into a pillow, punch a punching bag, whatever you have to do. You have to get honest about the areas of your life where you are feeling like you're not happy, like this situation is not bringing me joy, whether it's the job, the relationship, the, the you know, millions of different things, my health, the way I look, all this stuff. You have to get honest with yourself. And the only way you're going to change that is when you decide 
I cannot do this anymore. This is, I'm, I'm done with this and you have to make a declaration. And I always tell people, write it in a contract to yourself. And I mean that sincerely, write yourself a contract, sign the dang thing and go one step further and actually mail it to yourself. So you got a couple of days to think about it. It'll come right back around. You go to your mail and open it and you're like, oh damn, like I contracted, like I made this promise to myself. Right. It's in writing now. Like it's it's a bond. It's an agreement. Right. I mean, that has helped me and it's helped a lot of clients. I know that. So it's something you could try. Absolutely incredible. Lisa Marie, how can people follow up with you and keep the conversation going? So I would love to connect with people either on Facebook, which is where I'm always hanging out. Uh, You can just put in my name into the search and you'll find me personally. You'll find my fan page, Positive Transformation Coaching. Um, any way that you're able to reach out is wonderful. I'll, I'll connect with you. You can also email me at lisa at positivetransformation.net. Absolutely brilliant. Beautiful. You are on the inside and of course the outside. I thank you, Lisa Marie Pepe for joining us today. Really cool connecting. Thank you so much. It was really an honor. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode, The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Really great having you spending your time and giving us that gift today. It's a pleasure always doing this. We're going to have another episode not too far behind. Thanks for tuning in. Until we do it again, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.